to maybe go out sometime, catch a movie or something? Century Fox and George Lucas bring you an adventure unlike anything on your planet. Star Wars. Stop that ship! The Man of Scream. I'd forgotten how much I hate space travel. Here they come. They're coming in too fast! The story of a boy, a girl, and a universe. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. It's a big, sprawling space saga of rebellion and romance. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I'll come with you to Alderaan. There's nothing for me here now. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. It's a spectacle, light years ahead of its time. It's an epic of heroes. Good luck. Hit the accelerator. And villains. <laughs> and aliens from a thousand worlds. Go that way. You'll be malfunctioning within a day, you near such a scrap pile. Star Wars. A billion years in the making. The Force will be with you. Always. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 2 of Man of Screen at the Movies. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, I am going to take a look at another, the beginning of another franchise that was very important to me for my entire life. Last week I covered 1976's Rocky, and now we're marching further in time as we speed ahead to 1977, and on this episode I'm going to talk about Star Wars. You know, the original movie, the one that's actually called Star Wars. Better known nowadays to, uh... Most fans as episode four, A New Hope. But like I said, Star Wars has always been right up there for me with my Superman fandom. Always been a close second. You know, Star Wars has been around for me as long as I can remember, you know. I think it was uh, Scott Gardner, one of the uh, co-founders of of, uh, this Two True Freaks Network, who sometime, I don't remember if it was early this year or late last year, had one of those... uh, and a shirt that said 1977, 1980, 1983, I was there. And you know what? Having been born in 1980, I really wish I could have been there. There are two movie premieres that I wish I was around for. And they were both in the late 70s. I wish I was around for for the premiere of Star Wars in 1977, when this film just kind of took the world by storm and broke box office records, even though nobody was expecting it to do so. And... I really would have loved to have been around for the release a year later of Superman the movie. Alas, I did not show up until 1980, late 1980. And while I am told I saw Return of the Jedi in the theaters, I do not have any memory of that. So, and because of that, Star Wars has always been there. To me, it was always on VHS when I was uh, growing up. In, and actually, I think my parents still have those VHS tapes. I should check the next time I'm over there. I had the CBS Fox release of Star Wars. I'm not necessarily sure when these were released, but they were all in, uh, all three of these VHS tapes were in gray sleeves with, I believe, something close to the uh, theatrical movie poster on the cover. And 
for most of my life, that was how I watched Star Wars on, you know, a square tube TV, either. Mostly in my bedroom, where I think I got a TV when I was, and a VCR when I was about eight in my room. So, watch them there. And, you know, obviously those those VHS tapes were pan and scanned well before I knew any better. You know, I had no idea what widescreen was when I was a kid. And, you know, like I said, they were always there. They were in the rotation of movies that I, you know, watched frequently as a child. While some of my fandoms started, you know, late in the 80s and the 90s, this was always there. And through the 80s, I had the toys. Don't wish I still had some of them now, but I don't. You know, there was a time when I kind of did lose interest in Star Wars for a little while. In the quote-unquote dark times, until I regained it in 1991 with... The release of the Timothy Zahn Heir to the Empire novel. It's hard to pinpoint my history with the Star Wars trilogy because it's always been there for me. It's always been there whenever I've wanted to watch it. You know, for the longest time, Star Wars was only three films. So there wasn't as much to consume as some of the other franchises that I watched. You're only going to watch three movies every so often. Well, meanwhile, they're Super Friends and I had the George Reeves Superman series to watch and I had the Christopher Reeve movies. I had very many different iterations of Superman to watch, not excluding the Super Friends, of course. So that is probably why, you know, Superman overtakes Star Wars as a fandom. There just wasn't as much of it growing up as there was Superman. And obviously it didn't hurt Superman's case that, uh, that Christopher Reeve managed to squeeze out one more movie in 1987. I mean, it wasn't a very good one, but still, Superman 4 does have a special place in my heart just because it is the first theatrical Superman film that I remember seeing. That really says more about you know me and my experience than it does about the quality of the movie itself. So I have no memory of seeing any of these Star Wars films when during their theatrical runs. And on my... That's this movie, Star Wars, was released... Uh, when it was released theatrically in 1977, it the opening crawl was a little different in the sense that it only went from Star Wars to immediately into it's a period of civil war. The uh, episode four, A New Hope, was added later, but it was there. It was on those VHS tapes that I always watched. So really, for me, this movie was kind of always episode four, A New Hope. Not because I have any love for that particular title, but because it was always in the opening crawl for me. So I will admit it was a little weird when I watched Star Wars for this podcast. I watched the uh, Team Negative One uh, restoration, that, which was an attempt to uh, restore the movie to its initial theatrical form, which included the no episode title or number. So it was very strange for me not seeing uh, the number there because I've seen it with every other movie. You know, there are some that are, you know, want to recreate the version that was seen in the theater, and that's fine. Me, now that there have been seven other quote-unquote saga Star Wars films, I don't mind that the consistency being there in the opening sequence for all of them, which includes episode, number, and title. Now, even though I wasn't around in 1977, I was around in 1997 when the Star Wars trilogy was released in theaters in the special edition, and I'll talk a little bit about some of the specific special edition changes later. But, you know, even though, you know, some of the changes that were made are changes I don't necessarily agree with, especially the uh, changing the uh, cantina scene where Han and Greedo faced off and changing it so that Han fired a shot. I wasn't, like everybody else, I wasn't really crazy about that development. But even though there were things I didn't like, it was a treat being able to get to see one of my favorite movies on the big screen, even if I had to weather some of George Lucas's whims to, uh, to see it. Probably, you know, as far as the special editions go, you know, while it was a treat to see them in the theaters, you know, it was fleeting because, you know, it came and went. And I think I rubbed people the wrong way the most about the special editions was not so much that they happened because, you know, directors have been going back into their movies forever and making director's cuts and things like that. And, you know, George Lucas, with the uh, trials and tribulations that it went through to make Star Wars, wanted to go back to his, what he called his abandoned film and finish it with updated visual effects, which make it look like it's less a product of the 70s and more of kind of a mishmash between 70s and 90s technology. But I think what angered fans the most was his dismissal of the original version of the movie, of all three movies, in that to him, the original versions didn't exist anymore. And therefore, after the 1995 VHS release, you couldn't get an an unaltered version of the movie, of any of the three original trilogy films, which, you know, not everybody wants the uh, special edition or director's cut. 
they want the cut they always grew up with, and that's fine too. And it was kind of George Lucas's hubris that kept that away from people, and what led to the creation of things like this uh, Team Negative One version and the the specialized editions that are out there that I have not watched. But this time around, Star Wars. I'm going to talk about just in general my experience with the movie. I mean, we all know the movie. I'll read the synopsis later, but it feels kind of silly. We all know this film, but I've never given my thoughts on it, and Man of Screen at the Movies is going to be my chance to do so. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, then I'm going to come back with just some background information on Star Wars. Hang around, folks. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story, monthly at mystarwarsstory.com. All right, welcome back, folks. Just going to go into some of the uh, vital statistics of Star Wars. It was directed by George Lucas. Produced by Gary Kurtz, written by George Lucas, starring Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker, Harrison Ford as Han Solo, Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia, Peter Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin, Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan Ben Kenobi, Anthony Daniels as C-3PO, Kenny Baker as R2-D2, Peter Mayhew as Chewbacca, David Prowse as Darth Vader, and James Earl Jones was the voice of Darth Vader. Music, music was by... The legendary John Williams. Cinematography was by Gilbert Taylor. And the movie was edited by Pearl Paul Hirsch, Marsha Lucas, and Richard Chu. The production company was Lucasfilm Limited. Distributed by 20th Century Fox. Released on May 25th, 1977 in the United States. Running time was 121 minutes. That is for the original theatrical cut. The uh, I believe the special edition clocks in at about... 134. Country was obviously the United States. It's in English. The budget was $11 million and and its total domestic box office was $461 million. That includes uh, the special edition money. And it went on to make a worldwide box office of $775.3 million. So, not too shabby if you ask me. <laughs> and they would agree. The history of how Star Wars came to be is somewhat fluid as some of George Lucas's statements change over time. He initially claimed that he wanted to make a, make the film a space western and there are elements of uh, western in the film, specific, specifically Tatooine and the uh, Mos Eisley Cantina, so that's very western-like, but honestly, this movie changed and fluctuated so much while Lucas was writing it, you know, that who knows, you know, what's fact and what's legend these days. But he did begin writing this in January of 1973. He would write up to about four different screenplays for the film. And by May 1974, he had expanded the film, treatment to a rough draft of a screenplay, which added elements such as the Sith, the Death Star, and a general by the name of Anakin Starkiller. And he continued to kind of twiddle from there and change things, uh, and then, uh, you know, eventually he made Stark, Anakin Starkiller into an adolescent boy. I guess that's uh, something he'll save for the Phantom Menace. And I'm sure a lot of stuff was changed basically due to the uh, limitations of 1970s movie making. For instance, Han Solo was originally a green-skinned monster with gills. And Chewbacca was based on his Alaska Malmute dog, which, you look at Chewbacca, he looks nothing like an Alaska Malmute. Lucas completed the second draft of a film called The Star Wars in January of 75, making heavy uh, simplifications. And this is the uh, first draft that introduced the character of Luke Starkiller, who, uh, based Anakin, became Luke's father, a wise Jedi Knight. This was the draft that introduced the Force. And I wonder how much Jack Kirby Lucas read, because, you know, the Force sounds an awful lot like uh, the Source. 
in uh, the new cons comics of the 1970s. This draft also was the first to introduce the concept of a Jedi turning to the dark side of the Force. And in this movie, that is discussed. And as we all know, Darth Vader was not necessarily planned to be Luke Skywalker's father. But in the finished film, Obi-Wan does refer to Darth Vader as a Jedi who had turned and turned toward the dark side. And I'm going to discuss this later, a little bit more later on, that Darth Vader is treated as a name in this film and not so much as a Sith moniker. So Lucas finished a third draft on August uh, 75. This was titled The Star Wars from the Adventures of Luke Starkiller. For those of you who remember the, the novelization of Star Wars, if you uh, look at the cover of that book, I had bought a copy of the book in uh, Wildwood, New Jersey in 1991, around the, around the time I discovered Heir to the Empire. And it had like a, I want to say like a dull mustard cover, I believe. Star Wars was in green and had a little picture of the, uh, the cover art for the most part was the theatrical movie poster. And it basically said Star Wars from the Adventures of Luke Skywalker. So this third draft had most of the elements of the final plot with only some differences in the characters of the setting and settings. The uh, draft characterized Luke as an only child with his father already dead and replaced. And this is the first draft that introduced to Ben Kenobi. And eventually it was written again, a fourth and final draft dated January 1st, 1976 as the adventures of Luke Starkiller as taken from the Journal of the Wills, Saga 1, The Star Wars. Try getting that title on a movie poster. And this is a draft that was worked into the pre-production script. 20th Century Fox approved a budget of $8.25 million, and this did balloon up to $11 million. Can you imagine now if a modern blockbuster you know, overran its budget by $3 million instead of 50 So 20th Century Fox approved the budget, and uh, American Graffiti's positive reception afforded Lucas some the leverage necessary to renegotiate his deal with uh, Alan Ladd and request sequel rights for the film. And for Lucas, this deal protected Star Wars' unwritten segments and most of the merchandising profits. You know, Lucas made... Nobody cared about the merchandising pro- profits before this film came out, and Lucas hung on to them, and he made a killing. Most of his fortune... I believe he might have even made more of his fortune... For- I believe he may have made more of his fortune from the merchandise than from the actual films. So, the script was finished in March of 1976, and the crew started filming. At some point, Luke's name was changed from Starkiller to Skywalker, and the movie title was refined to Star Wars. And also a late addition to the film was the death of Obi-Wan Kenobi, which apparently Lucas discovered that Obi-Wan had no further purpose after this movie. So, one of the things Star Wars has always been known for is... And I'd like to see Disney do this a little more, as this is very much in Star Wars' tradition, to push the envelope on what is and isn't possible as far as visual effects goes. You know, Lucas, in order to get this movie completed, had to form his own visual effects company, Industrial Light and Magic, which is one of the leading effects houses now, after discovering that Fox's visual effects department had been disbanded. As far as cinematography goes, Lucas uh, wanted Jeffrey Unsworth, who Superman fans will recognize that name. Unsworth was the cinematographer for Superman the movie. And he gets a little memorial credit in the beginning of the first film. Unsworth at that time had also worked on Stanley Kubrick's uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. Unsworth was interested in the gig, and he accepted the job when it was offered to him. But he eventually withdrew to work on the uh, Vicente Vicente Minnelli, uh, went to work on uh, A Matter of Time instead, which apparently really annoyed uh, Gary Kurtz. And I wonder if Unsworth regretted that decision. I don't know. He didn't live much longer after that. So, And I wonder, Matter of Time came out in 76. I wonder if he worked on Star Wars, if he'd have been available to to work on Superman. So I guess we'll never know. <laughs> Originally, Lucas envisioned the planet Tatooine as a jungle planet. And when Kurtz went to the Philippines to scout locations, Lucas decided that the uh, idea of spending months in the jungle would make him itchy. And lo and behold... Tatooine, the planet we're all sick of, is formed as a desert planet, and famously shot in Tanusha. The film was mired in production problems. On March 22nd of 76, in the uh, Tunisian desert scenes of Tatooine, the project faced a bunch of problems. There were uh, malfunctioning props and electronic breakdowns. And even better, and this is when you know you're in trouble, when it rains in Tunisia. Can you imagine that? 
Here you are in Tunisia, a place where in Tunisia, a place where it hardly rains and you are getting rained on. So after filming two and a half weeks in Tunisia, the cast and crew moved to a more controlled environment, the L Street Studios near London. However, there were strict British working conditions that had to be adhered to on the set. Filming had to be finished by 5.30 unless Lucas was in the middle of a scene. So the interiors were shot in London, and L Street was chosen because it was the only uh, film studio that could handle the nine large stages that uh, Star Wars needed. Apparently, uh, the film was not looked too highly on by the crew, and most of it considered a children's film, and really took their work seriously and often found it humorous. Kenny Baker later confessed that he thought the film would be a failure, and Harrison Ford found it strange that there's a princess with weird buns in her hair, and he called Chewbacca a giant in a, in a monkey suit. Which, yeah, you can kind of see that. Apparently, George Lucas had a, was a horrible director of actors even then, and apparently the cast would attempt to make Lucas laugh or smile as he often appeared depressed. He was The project was very demanding, and Lucas, Lucas was diagnosed with hypertension and exhaustion and was warned to reduce his stress level. One of the reasons Lucas says he didn't direct the next two films, Empire and Jedi, is because of how stressful making this movie was for him. So Apparently, early on in his career, he wasn't the greatest director of people. Now, in post-production, Lucas was already... Anxious about his deadline, he was... The first cut of the film was described as a complete disaster. And according to uh, Star Wars Insider, the first edit of Star Wars contained about 30-40% to 40% different footage from the final version. And Jimson apparently uh, wouldn't cut the film Lucas's way, and he was gone, and Paul Hersher and Richard Chu came in. Along with his then-wife, then Marsha Lucas, to aid the editing process while, while she was cutting New York, New York with uh, Martin Scorsese. Meanwhile, Industrial Light and Magic was struggling to... Uh, complete uh, unprecedented special effects, and uh, ILM had spent over half of its budget on four shots that Lucas deemed unacceptable. So there you go. How do you like that? You spent half your money on four shots, and the director just throws them out. I'm sure that didn't, I'm sure that didn't help morale any. And there were additional stories that surfaced that workers at ILM lacked discipline, and Lucas had to intervene frequently to, frequently to ensure they were on schedule. And so basically, they had to do a year of work in six months. And it was during post-production that sound designer Ben Burke did his uh, great work. Blaster sounds with a modified recording of a steel cable under tension being struck. The famous lightsaber sound effect was developed by Burke as a combination of the hum of an idling interlock motors in old movie projectors and interference caused by a television set on a shieldless microphone. Chewbacca's growls were the combined sounds of made by dogs, bears, lions, tigers, and walruses. And Lucas and Burke created the robotic voice of R2-D2 by filtering their voices through an electronic synthesizer. And the iconic sound of Darth Vader's breathing, that's basically Ben Burt breathing through the mask of a scuba regulator implanted with a microphone. So, February 1977, the first cut of this film is, an early cut of this film is screened for Fox Executives, and several directors, and including Rory Thomas and Howard Chaikin of Marvel Comics, who were working on the uh, Marvel Star Wars series at the time. The cut had a different crawl for the finished version and used Prowse's voice for Darth Vader. The fact that James Earl Jones was hired for the uh, voice of Darth Vader was the first of many issues that David Prowse would eventually go on to have with George Lucas. The movie uh, also you know, didn't have any special effects, as many rough cuts don't. And apparently Lucas was disappointed by the reaction. Apparently uh, Spielberg was the only person who enjoyed, enjoyed the film, and he believed the lack of enthusiasm was due to the fact that the movie wasn't finished. And Lucas said that the group was honest and seemed bemused. But the studio executives loved the film. And speaking of Spielberg, you know, I know it's not going to happen at this point that Steven Spielberg is in his early 70s and he's got his own company. And I would have loved to have seen Steven Spielberg in his heyday direct a Star Wars movie. So, back to post-production. The movie was $2 million over budget. And, you know, Lucas had to make a bunch of compromises to finish the film, which led to his belief that the film was, quote-unquote, abandoned, which made him want to make the special editions in the first place. There were additional Tatooine shots in Death Valley and China Lake Acres of California. Probably that probably refers to the rocky area that we see R2-D2 rolling through at some point in the film. <laughs> and the exterior Yavin jungle shots were in Guatemala. Lucas had planned to uh, rework a confrontation scene between Han Solo and Jabba the Hutt in Mos Eisley by putting in a stop-motion animated model of Jabba, but time and money running out, Lucas cut the scene entirely. And it was put into the 1977 special edition with a CGI Jabba. So, the movie debuted on Wednesday, May 25th, 1977 in fewer than 32 theaters. And eight more on Thursday and Friday. That will be laughable today. 
and it immediately broke box office records, becoming one of the first blockbuster films, and Fox accelerated plans to broaden the release. And apparently, uh, after he visited uh, the set of Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Lucas was sure that Close Encounters would outperform Star Wars. Spielberg disagreed, and he felt Star Wars would be the bigger hit. Lucas proposed they trade 2.5% of the profit on each other's films. Spielberg took the trade, and he still receives 2.5% of the profits from Star Wars to this day. The film was a huge success for 20th Century Fox, and was basically credited for reinvigorating the company. And now it is helping keep Disney vital. Within three weeks, the studio's stock price had doubled to a record high. Before 1977, 20th Century Fox's greatest annual profits were $37 million. While in 1977, the company broke that record by posting a profit of $79 million. So, Star Wars was re-released theatrically several times in 1978, 79, 81, and 82. Remember, this was before home video. So, the only way to sometimes see a movie again is for it to be re-released in the theater. And the special editions came about in 1997 for the 20th anniversary of Star Wars. And because after Spielberg completed Jurassic Park in 1993... That's when Lucas felt digital technology had caught up to his quote-unquote original vision for Star Wars. Oh, and uh, I misspoke earlier on the runtime of the uh, special edition version of uh, Star Wars. That runs to 124 minutes. And I'll talk more about that later. So, I'm going to take another break, play another promo, then I'm going to come back and uh, we're going to discuss Star Wars. Or rather, I'm going to talk, I'm going to discuss, you're going to listen. That's how this whole podcast thing works, so... Hang around, folks. I'll be back. Star Wars, give me those Star Wars. Nothing but Star Wars. Don't let them Star Wars, those dear Star Wars. Talking about Star Wars on a podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and welcome to... And I'm the Irredeemable Shag. Dude, what are you doing? What? Give me those Star Wars as my show. Well, you're part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network, so it's really our show. But if you show up on the promo, people will think you're the co-host. I'm not? No, the show will have rotating guests. You just took that idea from my Justice League International podcast. You took that idea from my Secret Origins podcast. And you took that idea from Dead Both and Spies. That was my podcast! Wait a minute, wait a minute. I sang the theme song with you. So? So, technically, I appear on every episode. I'm part of the foundation of this new Star Wars show. That's... That's true. So, you want to take this from the top, or what? (sighs) I'm Ryan Daly. Join me and a galaxy of guest stars on Give Me Those... Including the irredeemable Shag, whose voice you will technically hear on every episode. On Give Me Those Star Wars... The official Star Wars show of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes and Stitcher and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Alright, welcome back folks. You know the uh, plot, but I'm going to read a synopsis from Wikipedia anyway. So here we go. Star Wars. The galaxy is in the midst of a civil war. Spies for the Rebel Alliance have stolen plans for the Galactic Empire's Death Star, a space station capable of destroying an entire planet. Rebel leader Princess Leia has the plans, but her ship, the Tanta V4, is captured by Imperial forces under the command of the ruthless Sith Lord, Darth Vader. Before she is captured, Leia hides the plans in the memory of an astromech droid, R2-D2, along with a holographic recording. R2-D2 flees to the desert planet Tatooine with C-3PO, a protocol droid. The droids are captured by Jawa traders who sell them to moisture farmers Owen and Maru Lars and their nephew, Luke Skywalker. While cleaning R2-D2, Luke accidentally triggers part of Leia's message in which she requests help from Obi-Wan Kenobi. The next morning, Luke finds R2-D2 missing and meets Ben Kenobi. Rest easy, son. You've had a busy day. You're fortunate to be all in one piece. Ben? Ben Kenobi? Boy, am I glad to see you. The jungle and wastes are not to be traveled lightly. <laughs> Tell me, young Luke. What brings you out this far? This little droid. I think he's searching for his former master, but I've never seen such devotion in a droid before. Uh, He claims to be the property of an Obi-Wan Kenobi. Is he a relative of yours? Do you know who he's talking about? 
Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan. Now that's a name I've not heard in a long time. A long time. I think my uncle knows him. He said he was dead. Oh, he's not dead. Well, not yet. Well, you know him. Well, of course I know him. He's me. I haven't gone by the name of Obi-Wan since all before you were born. Well, then the droid does belong to you. Don't seem to remember ever owning a droid. Very interesting. Obi-Wan tells Luke of his days as one of the Jedi Knights, former Galactic Republic peacekeepers with supernatural powers derived from an energy called the Force. No, my father didn't fight in the wars. He was a navigator on a spice freighter. That's what your uncle told you. He didn't hold with your father's ideals, thought he should have stayed here and not gotten involved. You fought in the Clone Wars? Yes. I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. I wish I'd known him. He was the best star pilot in the galaxy. And a cunning warrior. I understand you've become quite a good pilot yourself. And he was a good friend. Which reminds me, I have something here for you. Your father wanted you to have this when you were old enough, but your uncle wouldn't allow it. He feared you might follow old Obi-Wan on some damn fool idealistic crusade like your father did. Sir, if you'll not be needing me, I'll close down for a while. Sure, go ahead. What is it? It's your father's lightsaber. This is the weapon of a Jedi Knight. Not as clumsy or random as a blaster. An elegant weapon, but a more civilized age. For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the Old Republic. Before the dark times. Before the Empire. How did my father die? A young Jedi named Darth Vader, who was a pupil of mine until he turned to evil, helped the Empire hunt down and destroy the Jedi Knights. He betrayed and murdered your father. Now the Jedi are all but extinct. Vader was seduced by the dark side of the Force. The Force? Now the Force is what gives the Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. Now, let's see if we can't figure out what you are, my little friend. And where you come from. I saw part of the message. You... I seem to have found it. General Kenobi, years ago you served my father in the Clone Wars. Now he begs you to help him in his struggle against the Empire. I regret that I am unable to present my father's request to you in person, but my ship has fallen under attack and I'm afraid my mission to bring you to Alderaan has failed. I have placed information vital to the survival of the Rebellion into the memory systems of this R2 unit. My father will know how to retrieve it. You must see this droid safely delivered to him on Alderaan. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. You must learn the ways of the Force if you are to come with me to Alderaan. Luke declines, but changes his mind at dis discovering that Imperial Stormtroopers have destroyed the moisture farm, killing his aunt and uncle. Obi-Wan and Luke travel to Mos Eisley where they meet smuggler Han Solo and his Wookiee first mate, Chewbacca, at a cantina. They join forces aboard the Millennium Falcon. Upon the Falcon's arrival at the location of Alderaan, the group discovers that the planet has been destroyed by order of the Death Star's commanding officer, Grand Moff Tarkin, as a show of power. The Falcon is captured by the Death Star's tractor beam and brought into its hangar bay. While Obi-Wan goes to disable the tractor beam, Luke discovers that Leia is imprisoned aboard, and with the help of Han and Chewbacca, Luke rescues her. After several escapes, the group makes its way back to the Falcon. On the way to the Falcon, Obi-Wan engages in a lightsaber duel with Vader. To ensure the rest of the team escapes the Death Star alive, 
Obi-Wan sacrifices himself at the hands of Darth Vader. The Falcon, escapes from the Death Star, unknowingly carrying a tracking beacon, which the Empire follows to the Rebels' hidden base on Yavin 4. The Rebels analyze the Death Star's plans and identify a vulnerable exhaust port that connects to the station's main reactor, and that the Death Star can be destroyed through a chain reaction. Luke joins the Rebel Squadron while Han collects his payment for the transport and intends to leave, despite Luke's request that he should stay and help. So, you got your reward and you're just leaving then? That's right, yeah. Got some old debts I gotta pay off with this stuff. Even if I didn't, you don't think I'd be fool enough to stick around here, do you? Why'd you come with us? Pretty good in a fight. Good news you. Come on. Why don't you take a look around? You know what's about to happen, what they're up against. They could use a good pilot like you. You're turning your back on them. What good's a reward if you ain't around to use it? Besides, attacking that battle station ain't my idea of courage. It's more like suicide. All right. Well, take care of yourself, Han. I guess that's what you're best at, isn't it? Hey, Luke. May the force be with you. In the ensuing battle, the Rebels suffer heavy losses after several unsuccessful attack runs, leaving Luke as one of the few surviving pilots. Vader leads a squadron of TIE fighters and prepares to attack Luke's X-Wing fighter, but Han returns and fires at the Imperials, sending Vader spiraling away. You're all clear, kid! Now let's blow this thing and go home! Like Ivan from only one spirit, Luke uses the Force to destroy the Death Star seconds before firing on the base. Great shot, kid! That was one in a million! Remember, the Force will be with you, always. Back on Yavin 4, Leia awards Luke and Han with medals for their heroism. Alright, like I mentioned in the uh, first sequence, when I watched this, I decided to watch the uh, Team Negative One version, uh, which tried to uh, restore the uh, original theatrical cut that was released in 1976. Again, I am not a film nerd, so I have no loyalty to the original theatrical cut, or really any cut that has uh, that doesn't have the Episode 4 in A New Hope in the Crawl, because as far as my, my own Star Wars movie viewing experience, it was always there. Last night was actually the first time I ever saw it without that. You know, I didn't miss seeing the imperfections of the original film, and I got used to uh, the cleaned-up looking of the later remasters. You know, I don't think I'd have minded these special editions as much if they were just, you know, remastered the way Star Trek, the original series was. You know, with just, you know, effect shots looking updated and stuff like that. I could have done without a lot of Lucas's additions. The only addition to the film that I really thought was necessary was the scene with Biggs, uh, and Luke right before the Death Star fighter battle. I'll get to that later on. But for the sake of this podcast, I really wanted to watch this show as close to the way I watched it when I was a kid. You know, like I mentioned before, I believe my parents might actually still have the VHS copy that I used to watch. And I could have watched that if I wanted to. Go grab uh, my old VCR, hook that up to my TV, and watch that. But uh, that seemed to be more of an effort that I really wanted to put forward. And... I'm not sure how good it would have looked on my television if a 55-inch LED TV in pan and scan probably would have looked ghastly. You know, Team Negative 1 did a great job with uh, with this restoration, but it did look very grainy on my uh, on my TV. I mentioned those CBS Fox videos. I watched them until I bought my own version of the films in the late 90s. Those, however, were special editions because, like I said, after 1997, the original versions of the movie didn't exist to George Lucas anymore and you couldn't get them. And... At that point, the originals were... The, the, the 1995 release was already out of print. Now, before doing research for this episode, I had never really thought about the choice to make the droids to focus early on in the film. And while as a reader of the original novel, I would have liked to have seen the scene with Luke and Biggs as they are watching the space battle with the Atanta V4, but to have Aunt Beru calling him and then seeing Luke running toward the courtyard with the Luke scene playing softly is a much better introduction to the character than... That scene with Biggs would have been. Especially now that epi- that the prequels are in the mix, and especially Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, where if you watch them in that sequence, and I mean, there might even be some people who have watched the prequels and then watched this for 
some reason. And if those people have, you know, if you watched episode three for the first time, now you're watching this for the first time, this is the moment where you realize, oh, yeah, here's that kid that was born at the end of the last movie. Here he is now all kind of grown up. Now, I am neither a prequel defender nor am I a basher of them. And you'll eventually hear me talking about the prequels when I reach 1999 and the early 2000s. But everyone who complained about Anakin's whininess should watch Luke in this film without wearing their nostalgic color blinders. Because he is whining, especially the opening scenes. Luke! Take these two over to the garage, will you? I want them cleaned up for dinner. But I was going into Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. You can waste time with your friends when your chores are done. Now, come on, get to it. All right, come on. It just isn't fair. Oh, fix this ride. I'm never going to get out of here. Is there anything I might do to help? No, not unless you can alter time, speed up the harvest, or teleport me off this rock. And if these new droids do work out, I want to transmit my application to the Academy this year. You mean the next semester before the harvest? Sure, there's more than enough droids. Harvest is when I need you the most. It's only one season more. This year, we'll make enough on the harvest that I'll be able to hire some more hands, and then you can go to the Academy next year. You must understand, I need you here, Luke. But it's a whole other year. Look, it's only one more season. Yeah, that's what she said when Biggs and Tank. Where are you going? Looks like I'm going nowhere. I have to go finish cleaning those droids. You know, most notably, you know, that wine comes out pretty good when he wants to go to Tashi Station to pick up the power converters, or at dinner when he wants to, uh go to the academy now or when he's in the garage with the droids and he's screaming and bitching about how he'll never get out of there. Obviously, Uncle Owen is doing his best to keep Luke from ending up like his father. Now, I'm not sure what they know about Anakin Skywalker. And this is even harder to tell because things that we'll know later haven't been invented yet. But I don't think they know that Anakin, that Luke's father is Darth Vader. And I don't really know how either of them can judge how much of Anakin is in Luke. Because this film implies that they know Anakin much better than it's eventually revealed that they did when the prequels came out. According to episode 2, Anakin was only with the Lars's for a day or two before Obi-Wan called him away. The message from Obi-Wan Kenobi kind of does jive a little bit with this movie because Obi-Wan does mention that Owen is afraid Luke would follow Obi-Wan the way Anakin did. Now, I love Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan Kenobi. Who doesn't? But there are... There are a few things here. When Luke tells him that R2 claims to be the property of Obi-Wan, there's a little glance, and with prequel knowledge, you can say that it's him wondering if that's Anakin's R2 unit. And then he doesn't recall ever owning a droid. People call this one of Obi-Wan's big lies, but I can kind of wave that away with a quick hand motion because, one, while Obi-Wan did work with R2, R2 was assigned to Anakin, and I don't necessarily know who owned R2-D2. Back then, did was he owned by Padme? Was he owned by uh, Anakin? Or were they owned by the Republic of the Jedi Order? There's really no way to know. Nobody uh, has made a movie about the uh, deeds of the droids. But the droids are, are clearly property. We do know that at this time that the droids are the property of Captain Antilles. Now also people with uh, prequel knowledge will tell us that Obi-Wan told Luke some falsehoods or quote-unquote alternative facts. A term which is very popular in. Well, it was very popular in the media about a year ago. I don't know if anybody's saying it now anymore, but there it is. Anakin following Obi-Wan and knowing what she Anakin said on Tatooine is probably a relation of the events of Episode 2. And I do wonder if in the intervening years there have been some confrontations between Obi-Wan and Owen Lars. Now, the following films are kind of unfair to Obi-Wan Kenobi, as the later revelation of Darth Vader's identity makes him complicit after the fact, because when this movie was written, Obi-Wan was telling... Luke the truth. And they do eventually kind of have to wave that away in, Epi- in Return of the Jedi. And I'll talk about that when I get to Return of the Jedi. But when this was written, Vader was not Luke's father. At least not intended to be. So Obi-Wan has a clear agenda here, and he wants Luke to be a Jedi. That's clear even without prequel knowledge. Now speaking of Vader, when people describe Darth Vader as, you know, the badass greatest uh, villain of all time, they must be thinking of Vader as he appeared in The Empire Strikes Back because... Everyone is mouthing off to Vader in this movie. Darth Vader, only you could be so bold. The Imperial Senate will not steal for this. When they hear you've attacked a diplomatic... Don't act so surprised, Your Highness. You weren't on any mercy mission this time. Several transmissions were beamed to the ship by rebel spies. I want to know what happened to the plans they sent you. I don't know what you're talking about. 
I'm a member of the Imperial Senate on a diplomatic mission to Alderaan. You are part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor. Take her away! Holding her is dangerous. Word of this gets out. It could generate sympathy for the rebellion in the Senate. I have traced the rebel spies to her. Now she is my only link to finding their secret base. She'll die before she'll tell you anything. Leave that to me. Don't try to frighten us with your sorcerer's ways, Lord Vader. Your sad devotion to that ancient religion has not helped you conjure up the stolen data tapes or given you clairvoyance enough to find the rebel's hidden fort. It starts with that commander or whatever he was in the beginning of the movie warning him that holding uh, Princess Leia is dangerous. And then there's... In the conference room here, Admiral Monty getting uh, getting fresh with Vader, and it's clear that Vader is subservient to Tarkin. So Vader is not necessarily the uh, badass villain in this movie that we all like to think he is. The costume is very imposing, that's for sure. But as far as what Vader is and what Vader does, he's not really come into his own yet. Now, one of the key differences between Luke and Anakin is how they deal with death. In Episode Two, Anakin will lose it and kill all the Sand People after their actions result in the death of his mother. Here, Luke, you know, is sad that the Empire kills his aunt and uncle. He's grieving, but these events spur him into action and toward becoming a Jedi because his tether tattooing was cut. The death of Shmi Skywalker in Episode 2 moved Anakin away from the path of the Jedi, where the deaths here move Luke toward it. So there's a fundamental difference in the way Anakin and Luke are confronting a similar type death. And uh, as soon as he sees the burning hut, the hut was burned by the Empire, obviously, after they tracked the sale of the robots to the Lars homestead. You quite clearly see their bones outside the hut, and you almost want to wonder if Luke just left their bones there to rot. And then eventually we get to uh, the uh, cantina, and this is just out-and-out celebration of impressive alien and costuming work of the late 70s. This scene with all of its aliens is amazing. The camera spares... No frame space on showing off as much of these characters as they can before it has to get back to the story. Now, just uh, one thing I want to say right here. George Lucas has no trouble destroying the pace of this movie on the slightest whim. I mean, but he doesn't really linger on the aliens too long in this scene. And you know what? Seeing all these alien creatures really just sets the tone for what the Mos Eisley Cantina is. And, of course, uh, we get into a confrontation and a bar fight with, uh, I keep forgetting this, uh, Doctor, whatever his name is. You know, the guy who has a death sentence on him in 12 systems. I love how Obi-Wan just coolly cuts him down, cuts his arm right off. And this is where we meet Han Solo and Chewie. And here is the first major change. I am finally watching this version. And I haven't watched an unaltered version of this film since, 19, since 1997. As special editions were all I was able to get my hands on. But I'm finding I'm not missing the changes. You know. But here's the biggest one. Greedo getting a shot off, which spawned all kinds of t-shirts, basically. A whole movement dedicated to Han shot first. In the original version of this film, Han did not shoot first. Greedo didn't get a shot off. In order for Han to shoot first, Greedo has to shoot second. There is no first shot until there's a second one. So Han fired the only shot, and I wish this scene was left alone. You know, we've all heard George Lucas try to justify this. By saying that he didn't want kids to see Han Solo as a cold-blooded killer. I've been watching this movie since I was a kid. I've never thought of Han Solo in that way. Here is Greedo, who is clearly, the minute the minute he steps in front of Han Solo as he's leaving the cantina, he shoves his blaster right into Han's chest. Doesn't that tell you something? It's not like uh, Han went up to him, tapped him on the shoulder, and popped him. They're having this whole conversation with Greedo holding the gun on Han. How else is he going to get ahead of this other than shooting Greedo? You tell me. So, it just doesn't make any sense. But I, the, the worst part is that, my God, it looks awful. Like, the if you look at the way Greedo's holding the gun and the way his shot goes, you know, it doesn't even look like the blaster bolt should go that way. And Han just sits there as the blaster bolt sizzles the wall next to his head. It just it doesn't look good if they try to shoehorn that blaster bolt into a static shot. Just... Horrible. You know, Lucas has tried to fix it with every subsequent release since 1997, but honestly, he should have just restored it to its original form. And then the other big addition in this part of the movie is the Jabba scene. While cool to see once, really adds nothing to the film. And some of Harrison Ford's lines are delivered exactly the same way as in the Greedo scene. And they're the same lines. 
if you listen to Han tell Greedo then Jabba that sometimes he gets boarded sometimes, even he gets boarded sometimes, you think like, he had a, I had a choice. If you listen to that line in both scenes, it's exactly the same tone. Hell, it could almost be from the other scene. But the scene is redundant. All it gives us is a gratuitous shot of Boba Fett. And then they get to the Death Star, through the asteroid field, nothing. I didn't realize that the shot of them killing the stormtroopers off screen was added later. And another addition that didn't work was 3PO's voiceover as R2 uh, looks for the tractor beam. And something else I want to point out. Now, people talk about how much better the dialogue is in these films than it is in the prequels. And it is. But I don't attribute that to uh, Lucas having forgotten how to write dialogue between the 80s and the late 90s. And from actor interviews and from hearing Mark Hamill speak about the filming of the original movie, this movie, it's clear that they changed dialogue to make it flow better, and since Lucas wasn't the institution that he would later become, the actors had a little bit more leeway to doctor their lines as long as it didn't alter the story. I mean, can you imagine Natalie Portman at whatever age she was when A Phantom Menace was filming, complaining to George Lucas about the dialogue and changing it? At that age, it's pretty much, oh, what was she, somewhere between 15 and 17 at that time? Should you picture her telling George Lucas, I'm sorry, George, your dialogue stinks. And actually, it wasn't even until episode two that I noticed the uh, dialogue was all overly wordy and flowery. Sometimes I wonder if he did that on purpose to kind of illustrate a stodgy, uh, decadent society. I mean, so much of this trilogy is very much street level. But I wonder if what we see in the prequels is his idea of how high society would talk. So, believe it or not, in the first scene, the scene where Luke rescues Leia from the cell block is the only time where we hear Luke's na- full name mentioned at all in the movie. Fun fact there. And then when you see the way the garbage disposal scene ends, when the walls stop converging, the sheer joy, the outpouring of emotion you see in this film, you just don't see it in other Star Wars films. And there's a rawness to this film that really appeals to me. And one of the other things I love, you know, just... It seems that it makes this movie seem very natural. Is when Obi Wan is skulking around the tractor beam area, the two stormtroopers that come out, they're BSing, and I like that. One of the stormtroopers asked the other if he saw something, and I don't remember exactly what he said, but and then he mentions that yeah, one of the other guys was telling him about it, and you know they're just talking like two guys alone on an assignment probably would, especially if they know each other and they're buddies. You know, so those little touches of, I really like those little touches of personality, oh, I don't know about personality, there's touches of realism. Like, these guys would just BS on assignment. Great. You don't see that in the other uh, sanitized, in the other movies, which are much more rigid. Now, there are more clues here that Darth Vader wasn't always Anakin Skywalker. During their duel, Obi-Wan keeps calling Darth Vader Darth as if it's his first name, and not a Sith moniker. And uh, incidentally, the, while the novelization of this movie mentions that Darth Vader is a Dark Lord of the Sith, the word Sith is not mentioned in a film until Phantom Menace in 1999. And while I also knew from the novelization that Leia's last name was Organa, I don't necessarily believe the name Organa appeared until Episode 3? Was he referred to as? Or did anybody call him Organa in Episode 2? I don't remember. <clears throat> so, But anyway, back to the duel with Obi-Wan and uh, Vader. Not a very riveting fight here. Maybe Vader is toying with Obi-Wan. Maybe Vader's been out of the back for too long. I don't know, but... When he does kill Kenobi, he is surprised to see his body disappear. So, something strange is going on, and that comes directly out of uh, Obi-Wan's line about how if he strikes Kenobi down, he'll become more powerful than Vader could ever imagine. The book went a step further, as was probably part of the original script, where Kenobi says, if I, if I strike you down, you will simply cease to exist. And then he goes into, if you strike me down, I'll become more powerful than you could possibly imagine. So, he's making it sound that those Sith cannot become Force Ghosts. So after Kenobi dies, this is when we immediately get the uh, introduction to uh, Kenobi's disembodied voice telling Luke to run from the stormtroopers, which is good advice. So they get away, because for some inexplicable reason, the Empire only sends four TIE fighters after them. And there's a homing beacon aboard the ship, so why send any? You know, I never thought about it until I read the novelization, but Leia says in the novelization they could have easily launched 400 TIE fighters and overwhelmed the Falcon easily. And if you think about it from that perspective... It's easy to say that they Empire let the Falcon go. But why? Why put on this show other than to give us moviegoers a decent action sequence? Now, people made a big deal about Last Jedi, about how the First Order could track somebody through hyperspace. Why is that a problem? Isn't that what the Empire is doing right here? So now, after all this, is a little quiet moment in the Falcon, where in the cockpit, where Luke and Han are discussing Leia. 
you can see Luke is trying to see if Han is going to make a move on her, and Han knows exactly what's going on. He's been around the block a few times, but I'm not sh- sure what his intentions are at this time, but we're pretty sure he's not expected to uh, hang around the princess and take his money and run. Of course, if they all knew then, what they know now. Of course, as of right now, Han and Luke don't know anything because they're dead. And we're still waiting to hear what's going to become of Princess Leia due to the uh, unfortunate passing of Carrie Fisher a year ago. So, during the during the briefing with the star pilots, uh, the guy sitting next to Luke is supposed to be Wedge, but I don't think that's Dennis Lawson. I don't necessarily remember what the uh, story was, but that is not Dennis Lawson. And Luke and Han have their final discussion. Han offers Luke a job while he's putting something onto the Falcon. I don't know if these are cases full of money or what, but he's putting them on the ship. So, well, there could be boxes full of cash for all I know. So, the theatrical cut fails Biggs a little bit as the film cuts out all of his scenes prior to the Starfighter battle and eliminates Luke's prior relationship with him with the exception of two mentions. The, in the garage where he says Biggs is right, whining again, and at dinner when Luke is whining again and tells... And Uncle Owen and Aunt Peru, that that's what they said when Biggs and Tank left. You know, I didn't even realize these two men knew each other until I read the novelization in 1991. But maybe if I had this scene with Luke and Biggs showing that they are buddies, would have helped me feel some early emotion for the death of Biggs in the upcoming Starfighter battle. Oh, by the way, spoiler. You know, the previous mention of Biggs. So, so the, the battle's going on. The Rebels are pretty much getting their butts kicked. I do love to scream as Red Leader crashes to his death on the Death Star. That's great. But like I said, there's no emotion when Biggs dies toward the end of the battle. There's more emotion when R2 gets shot. But I love the moment, and I always want to cheer when Han comes back to the Death Star and shoots the TIE Fighters, clearing the space for Luke, to use the Force and destroy the Death Star. It's just a great moment. You know, I can watch that scene over and over again. Han telling Luke to blow the bullet thing and go home, showing that Han does have some loyalty. And you can kind of see it a little bit in the, uh, before the Starfighter battle when, you know, we, you're never going to get any subtitles for Chewbacca. So we, we really never know what he's saying. The only clues we get to what Chewbacca might be saying is in what Han says in response. And Chewie does say something as he's loading up and Han says, what are you looking at? You know, I know what I'm doing. But you can tell the way he says, I know what I'm doing. This is great acting here by, for that. He is, you know, he's conflicted. Maybe he doesn't quite know what he's doing. Maybe at that moment he's reconsidering. You know, even the uh, telling Luke, may the Force be with you, is progress for Han, who was ridiculing the Force earlier in the film. So, towards the end here, you can see the wheels on Han start to turn. And I'll talk a little bit more about Han in Empire, because Han's a very interesting character in the sense that really beyond this, there's no reason that he could have for him to hang around. The, he's leaving to go back and pay off Jabba the Hutt at the beginning of Empire. There's no reason for him to stay around for that long. Hell, he could have gone, paid Jabba, and then come back. So, I don't know. Han is an interesting case, let's just say that. And I'll talk more about that when I get to Empire. And one thing that happens, is that does not happen, is while the Death Star is destroyed, the uh, main villain, Darth Vader, is not, and he kind of just flies away. So I wonder if that's Lucas planning the sequels by... Having Darth Vader survive. And then there's the metal scene. Very iconic John Williams. You know, people will put up Star Wars as John Williamson's all-time best score. I don't know, it's up there, but I think the Superman score is a little bit better. But that's the fun thing about some of these uh, works of art. You can debate them and no one be wrong for as long as you want. So, with that, with that being over, like I said, this is the first time I've watched an old older version of the film since 97. I found that I didn't miss any of the changes, which goes to show that they weren't necessary for this film to be enjoyable. I think fans would have handled the special edition better if Lucas hadn't been so adamant about the original version so long or existing. I think that rubbed a lot of fans the wrong way. But like I said, I really love this film. Star Wars is my second biggest fandom next to Superman. I'm still unsure where Disney is, about where Disney is taking the property, but I find it hard to believe there's going to be a time when I walk away from Star Wars. So... Next time, it'll be a while before I double back to Man of Screen at the Movies. But when I do, after the conclusion of Season 3 coverage of Super Friends, I'll cover Rocky 2 from 1979. And in two weeks, I will be back. The, Man of, the regular Man of Screen podcast will return with Season 2, the all-new Super Friends hour. So, if you would like to send me feedback, you can send it to manofscreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over the Facebook group, 
Just put Man of Screen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. And also find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. And if you don't mind, why don't you leave me a review on an Apple Podcast? That helps other people find the show, too. So, thanks for listening, folks. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. And may the force be with you. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you do, the two true freaks get a little cut of what you buy, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you can shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.